We are super glad that you guys are here. This is the first Sunday of the month, uh, which is my favorite Sunday because it means that we're having dinner uh, together. So if you had dinner plans, cancel them right now. Text whoever you got to text. Email whoever you got to email. But uh, it's going to be a good time. We do have a potato bar. And so... Um, It has occurred to me that Sarah and I, my wife and I, have difference of opinions on what movies are okay for the girls to watch and what are not. Any fathers ever have that, like, yeah, I think we could watch this, and then wife finds out, you let them do what? And I'm like, oh. So a few weeks ago, uh, I thought it was time that Brooklyn started to enjoy some of the movies that I really like, and so I thought, you know what, let's watch Iron Man. And uh, yeah, right? Yes! Iron Man! Iron Man is great. Um, a little bit later on, Sarah said that, that wasn't the best idea. Um, I said, well, you know, I skipped the parts that I thought were rather inappropriate or something, whatever. And uh, I asked Brooklyn later if she liked it. And she says, well, I didn't like the first, whoa, 15 minutes. Um, but I did like it after that. She goes, but not so much that I want to watch it again. And I was really heartbroken. But... At the beginning of Iron Man, which is one of my top five, it really is. It's right there underneath Goodfellows and Godfather and a few others. Um, at the very beginning, when he's in the cave with Ginson, uh, there's this really neat interaction. And basically, Tony Stark says that they're going to kill me, you, either way. And if they don't, I'll probably be dead in a week. And Jensen's response is rather interesting. He says, well then... This is a very important week for you, isn't it? This is an important week if this is your final week. We've been studying the life of Christ, it seems like, for about five years. But we are moving into like the, the, the down-home stretch. We're moving into the final week uh, before the crucifixion of Jesus. This is actually the final seven days, which people would call uh, the Passion Week. Anybody ever heard Passion Week before? So Passion Week is this idea of what Jesus is passionate about. It's why Mel Gibson uh, had the passion of the Christ. Um, but the last week of Jesus, we, his, we see his passion come to uh, its fullness. And so a question, what is Jesus' passion? And the answer is, it is you and it is me. We are his passion. He is most passionate about you and me. And think about this for a moment. In your life, the things that you are most passionate about, aren't it, isn't it those things that you seem to be willing to sacrifice the most for? So think about the things in your life that are important to you, and you're willing to sacrifice more things to make those things happen. You're willing to make a sacrifice, whether it's sports, or a job, uh, maybe it's a hobby, family, a spouse, and hopefully your relationship with Jesus Christ. Hopefully your relationship with the Lord is something that you're willing to make sacrifices for. And like many of you, Jesus is willing to sacrifice the most for what he is most passionate about, and that is you. And so what he does on the cross he does for you as a result of his passion for you. And the cross in Jerusalem is where his focus has been for quite some time, and it's going to continue to be that. Remember, 
uh, many weeks ago, Jesus' focus shifted. And he actually says in chapter 9 of Luke, his, he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. That was going to be what his focus was going to be. He's going to turn his attention towards Jerusalem. But before he takes his place on the cross and sacrificially gives up his life as a payment for our sins, the final week of his life is an important week, and we should pay attention to those things. And so for a passionate follower of Jesus Christ, how would you spend your last week? For people in the world, they would probably do worldly things. That makes sense. And probably for some Christ followers, we might even do some worldly things. We might want to go see something, go participate in something. For people who follow after Jesus, I would assume that we would want to tell people about him. People that do not have a relationship with Christ, that is something um, that I, I feel like that's what we should do, point people in his direction. Jesus begins Passion Week by entering into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry uh, that we celebrate on Palm Sunday most of the time. Uh, so usually it's the week before Easter. The triumphal entry is only the second event in Jesus' life that is recorded in all four Gospels. So the feeding of the 5,000, recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is recorded in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John chapter 12. Something significant is going to happen. Something big is about to happen. That's where we're going to pick it up. In Matthew chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, if you're at home, maybe grab a Bible or a phone. Uh, I'll also put the, the verses on the screen. But here's how it starts in verse 8. It says, most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. This basically means they're going to treat him like royalty. This is uh, symbolic of what you would do for royalty. You're going to lay things down at their feet. Uh, today, I think we would look at it as though like we're rolling out the red carpet or we're throwing the rose petals for a bride to walk on as she walks towards her groom. And so uh, the others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. In John's gospel, it will tell us that these are palm branches. But Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! This the Greek word is Hosanna! For the son of David, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. In verse 10, it says the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is like a victory parade before the victorious moment actually even occurs. So uh, back in 2001, I had the opportunity to go to the victory parade because the Colorado Avalanche uh, beat up on the Devils and in seven games, and so they won the Stanley Cup, and my buddy and I decided, hey, let's go. Let's join a million people in Denver and just have a lot of fun. We'll get as close to the parade as we can, and we'll go to the big rally that they had, and so it was a lot of fun for us. Uh, to get into the parade route and to cheer on the players as they go by and then made our way over 
uh, to watch them. And it was, you know, Foote and Forsberg and Sackick and all those guys. Uh, what an amazing time. But they had already won the Stanley Cup. And so we were celebrating the fact that they won the Stanley Cup. This is like a victory parade for Jesus. And the victorious moment hasn't yet occurred, even though we know it is going to. And on the day that Jesus makes his way up to the Mount of Olives, the people are prepared to proclaim him Messiah and King. Messiah meaning the anointed deliverer or savior. And they're ready to go ahead and proclaim him that. So this is actually the first time that Jesus has actually been okay with everyone proclaiming who he actually is. Up until this point, he's like, hey, you know what? Don't tell anybody that. Let's keep that kind of stuff quiet. And there was a reason that he did that. Jesus was controlling the timeline. He's controlling how things are going. And so before he was like, no, don't tell anybody. Now he's saying, go and tell everybody. He's in control of the situation, control of the timeline. In order for Jesus to be the Messiah, Every prophetic statement in the Old Testament must come true. It's important for him to die on a specific day and in a specific way. He needs to be betrayed by one of his own, handed over to specific people. And when you read through the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, it's rather amazing that every single one of them is spot on, and they need to be spot on. And so Jesus is actually going to brush things up a little bit in the last week of his life. And so he's going to be a little bit more open about who he actually is, and he's stoking the fire, as we would say. And at the same time Jesus is doing that, we are told that the religious leaders are working on an assassination of not only Jesus, there's actually two people they're wanting to assassinate, Jesus and Lazarus. This is kind of like the mafia, where we don't want to leave any loose ends. They want to eliminate the person who basically, they say, resurrected this guy, and they want to eliminate the man who he resurrected. And so they want to eliminate Jesus. And this would basically mean that no one really close to Jesus is all that safe. And so over the next few days, Jesus is going to be moving from place to place, mostly between Bethpage, Bethany, and Jerusalem. Those are all in the general same area, uh, just a few miles separating those three areas. And so on Sunday, Jesus gets the royal parade, the grand entry, the triumphal entry. On Monday, uh, Jesus clears out the vendors in the temple, and that's going to attract a lot of attention as well. So he's had a couple really good days. And then on Tuesday, Tuesday's where we're going to really land on today. Um, Tuesday, Jesus is going to make a statement that is going to be one of the most offensive things that the religious leaders have ever heard. He, Jesus is going to poke the bear, I guess as you would say, or he's going to basically uh, get the attention of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. Uh, and so it all starts with them questioning Jesus. So early on Tuesday morning, Jesus is in the temple teaching and preaching the gospel, and they question Jesus, and this is in Matthew 21, they question Jesus on what authority he is doing the things that he is doing. 
and saying the things that he is saying. They're like, Jesus, what authority do you have to do these things? What authority do you have to say these things? And I love the way Jesus responds in verse 24 and 25. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you why, by what authority that I do these things if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Isn't it amazing how Jesus will ask questions that basically, how do we answer this? Because if we answer it this way, we're kind of hosed over in this direction. And if we answer it this way, we're kind of hosed over here as well. That's exactly what Jesus does and that he knows it. So Jesus now questioning all three branches of the Sanhedrin. This would be the chief priests, the Sadducees. It would be the teachers of religious law. That would be the Pharisees and the elders. These are the lay leaders. So these three groups making up the Sanhedrin, and he's questioning it. So what authority did John the Baptist baptize with what it was? Was it from the Lord or was it from man? And here they are in a pickle. And they actually tell why they are in a pickle, starting in verse 25. It says, they talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say, if we say it was merely human, uh, we'll be mobbed because the people believe John was a prophet. And so they finally, and basically they, they figured they would be stoned to death by the mad crowd that was there. And so they replied, finally, we don't know. That's the Jeff Spicoli answer, right? For anybody over 40, fast time. I don't know. Gee, Mr. Spicoli, I don't know. If they say one thing, this happens. And if they say the other thing, this will happen. And they didn't like the results of either one. And so they came up with the answer, we don't know. They don't want to recognize John's authority being God because Jesus very well gets his authority from God as well. They refused to follow John, and they obviously are having issues following Jesus. So can't say God. If it is from man, then there's a very good probability that the people in the crowd would stone them on the spot. John was incredibly popular. John the Baptist was so popular with the people. They love John, and they're still extremely upset about the execution that took place taking John's life. So their blood is still kind of boiling from that, but they also see Jesus as the next direct successor. So they see Jesus as a successor of John, and so these guys basically, they can't say either one. And so they basically plead the fifth. And so refusing to answer Jesus, so Jesus responds with, then I am not going to tell you what authority I am doing these things. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. You don't have an answer for me, I won't have an answer for you. And then Jesus tells three parables, and we're only going to hit on one of them tonight. Uh, but all three are going to be like an arrow at the hypocrisy of the men. Okay? All three of these, and I would encourage you in your own time, uh, maybe this week, to read all three of the parables because they're just so great. Um, but the first one, one of the reasons I'm going to 
I'm going to hit on this one because only Matthew uh, hits on this. And so this starts in verse 28. And Jesus says, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard. The son answered, no, I won't. Okay, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and he went anyway and worked in the field. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. And Jesus basically says, which one of these two obeyed the father? And they replied, the first. So the man was blessed, had two sons. And he basically tells each son, I need you to go and work like a laborer in the field, in the vineyard. I want you to go out and work. And I know this is different for you, but it's important that you go do this. And so, unfortunately... Um, both were wrong in that uh, one talks back to his father in a rather, I would say, unrespectful way. So unfortunately, talking back to authority uh, in a disrespectful way has kind of become the norm in today's culture. It drives me absolutely crazy. I struggle seeing young people talk to adults with blatant disrespect. It tells me something about the child, and it also tells me something about the parenting. But in Middle Eastern culture, to speak back to your father is seen as extremely scandalous. It is a pretty horrific thing that you would do that. And so the first son does wrong in his initial response, but later realizes what he needs to do, and he goes and does it. The second son, on the other hand, responded with, yes, sir, I will, but didn't actually do what was asked. This is almost like a tale of two evils, a tale of two wrongs. And here's where it really gets good. In 31, it says, then Jesus explained this, his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes. So he's like, greedy people and prostitutes will get into heaven, get into the kingdom of God before you do. Wow. Could you imagine thinking that you're really good with God and Jesus saying, hey, you know what? These people over here, the ones you despise, yeah, they're going to be ahead of you in line. But that's what, they, that's what they're told. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Now, this is the first time that Jesus directly, I mean pointedly, looks at the religious leaders and uses a parable to go after them. And it is quite direct. And they would be extremely shocked in hearing that the ones that they have looked down on the most are the ones ahead of them going into heaven. Tax collectors and prostitutes, what they did was they rejected God initially by their lifestyle. But over time, they learned from John the Baptist. They repented. They were baptized. And then many of them chose to follow after God. 
That's a great story. The religious leaders, they thought they were talking the right talk, but they refused to honor God with their lives. They rejected John's message of repentance, and most would end up rejecting the message of Jesus as well. And so there's this false reality for the religious leaders. And I would say that there's a false reality amongst many Christians who think that if we act a certain way in these areas and if we say the right thing, that we're going to be in okay shape. And to give the appearance of being holy and they were very self-righteous in their ways. That man, we're going to be first when it comes to God. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And Jesus is basically pointing that out to them. In verses 21 through 23, it's going to address this false reality. So if you go to Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, it says that not everyone who calls out to me, Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. See, those that acknowledge their sin and their need for Jesus, those who are wanting to grow in him and follow after him and pursue him are going to be welcomed by the Father. The other side of this parable is that obedience does matter to God. Obedience does matter to God. And I will just say this. We live in such a grace-driven world and I love the fact that we live where grace is being shown very strongly. But we have almost swung the pendulum so far that I believe many people have missed the fact that obedience does matter to God. And anyone who says otherwise, I don't think has ever been a parent. What I mean by that, <laughs> I couldn't help but think about our Heavenly Father who offers us grace and salvation through our faith in Jesus, but like any father, we want to know that our children are being obedient, right? And it actually does my heart good when I know our girls are being obedient. We have one that strives for it. We have another who has a lot of fun. We know her love is there. Last week, I had some time with the girls, and I told them both that I love them so much and that there is nothing that they could do that would take away that love. It is unconditional. And I so badly want them to know that. But that does not mean that we do not have expectations in our home. We do. We have expectations in our house. There are things that we ask of the girls that is important because you have our last name and you live under our roof. I don't know if I said roof right. Roof? Roof? 
Roof, ceiling, whatever. I don't know where I'm from anymore. And we want, you, we want them so badly to grow up into the best daughters of God that they can be. And so we have some expectations for them, guidelines and parameters. And when those are not met, we let them know, and oftentimes there's going to be consequences for that. It is like that in any business, any kind of organization. We have expectations, and we want you to, to meet those things. But it seems to me that a lot of Christians have taken grace and we have shifted that into the meaning of lawless living. It doesn't matter what you do. God's going to love you. He's your father. He'll accept you. And part of me, man, we have to live in the balance and the tension of grace and truth where we understand God's grace, but we do not spit on it by living lawless living. And we read through Scripture over and over and over again about this. And unfortunately, I will say this, uh, your church attendance doesn't really impact the kingdom of God. Your reading Scripture doesn't really impact the kingdom of God. You attending a Bible study doesn't really impact the kingdom of God. In fact, Satan doesn't mind you going to church. Satan doesn't mind you reading God's word, and he doesn't mind even, he doesn't even care if it is convicting to you as long as you don't act upon it. You can attend all the church services you want, but if you walk out the doors and do not act in obedience to God, and you don't go out there and try to win people for the kingdom, if you don't go out and make an impact, if you don't go out and do something, Satan's perfectly content with that. What he hates is when people go to church and they open up God's word and they are convicted and they go out and they try to live their lives storming the gates of hell by reaching as many people as they can, making disciples, making an impact. That you, when you look at scriptures and you realize that you can't continue to live a life of disobedience, the fact that you love God too much to do that, I love God too much to not go out and do something. So throughout scriptures, not just in this parable, but all throughout God's word, there is this constant reminder that calls us to pursue obedient lives. In James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. See, the religious leaders have been fooling themselves. I think it's interesting, as you read through the Old Testament, our life group has been going through the Old Testament, so this was fresh on my mind, but the Israelites in the Old Testament, after God, uh, through Moses, let them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and they are on their way to Canaan. <laughs> They're on their way. It should take a few weeks. And of course, because of their disobedience, it takes how long? 40 years. 40 years. On their way to the promised land. And then like some of us and some of our children, they disobeyed God. They didn't trust in the one who delivered them. 
And because of their disobedience, they were not allowed into the promised land. And actually only two were allowed in. Caleb and Joshua. But I want you to recognize something. Some of the most obedient people that you'll read about in the Old Testament were the children of that generation that had to die off before they were allowed to enter. And so what they did was rather impressive to me. And I, 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 as a youth pastor, I would hear parents oftentimes tell me, well, I can't ask my kids to do that because I didn't do that. Or, you know what, I, I, I finally came around, so my kids will come around. And I will tell you why that is a very, very big mistake. It is our job to say, hey, look, I made mistakes, and I don't want you to make the same mistakes. I don't want you to go down the same path that I went down because it leads to a lot of heartache. It leads to a lot of pain, and not just me, the people around me. It hurt my parents. It hurt my loved ones. It hurt all these people. So this generation of Israelites, even though they're stuck for 40 years, in Deuteronomy 6, it basically, the whole chapter is about this generation pouring into the next generation that you're going to teach them to obey the commandments that God gave you. I want you to write them down. I want you to tattoo them to your forehead. When you're brushing your teeth, you're going over these things. When you are walking out the door, when you are coming in, when you're going to bed, when you wake up, when you go to work, whatever it is, they, I mean, you read chapter 6, it is all about handing these things down to your children. And their children would grow up, go into the promised land, and there's a scene where God calls to, to Joshua and he says, here's what I want you to do. And in Joshua chapter 6, they obediently marched around the city of Jericho. Not just once, not just twice. Three, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And on the seventh day, they were obedient to God. And God delivered Jericho to them. Some of the most amazing acts of obedience are shown by the ones underneath the generation that missed out because of their lack of obedience. Obedience is a big deal because it reflects our love for God. The more I love him, the more I want to do things for him. And unfortunately, we live in a time period where obedience is oftentimes the third or fourth thought instead of the first. We've been going around and around with our youngest about obedience first because what she will do is at bedtime, we'll say, hey, I need you to go get ready for bed. Then she'll do something nice for us, but it's not what we asked her to do. And I love the fact that she wants to do something nice for us, but I also know what she's doing. <laughs> and we said, before anything else, obedience first. And you're getting it, aren't you? Yeah, you are. I, uh, I want to close. Actually, this is a Francis Chan illustration. I totally stole it. Did it a few years ago, but it is so, I think, right on the money. He was talking about asking his daughter to go in and clean her room 
And he said, you know, I want you to go in and clean your room. And so I gave her a few days, and I went in, and I sat with her. I said, hey, have you cleaned your room? And the way a lot of times that people do this is that they will say, you know what? I didn't clean my room, but I read a book about cleaning rooms. It was a really good book. Learned a lot. I learned the Greek words for cleaning and the Greek words for room. And so we're good. Learn that. Did you clean your room? No, but I read the book. You give it a few days. Hey, did you clean your room? No, I, I didn't clean my room, uh, but I got together in a small group with about six or seven other people, and they're my friends, and they came over, and we talked, and we prayed about cleaning rooms. And uh, man, we, we just really got into it. Sally even cried in the circle. It was just so impactful. And so we all gathered around her. We laid hands on her. It was just an emotional time. But did you clean your room? No, no, we just talked about it. A few days go by, now it's a week. Did you clean your room? Well, I didn't clean my room, but I watched this amazing video. And the video had this expert in room cleaning, and he shared the best ways to clean your room. It was incredible. I learned some things that I never knew about cleaning the room. It was incredible. You see the problem, church? That we can do all these things. We can say, man, we listened to some guy preach and open up God's word. We went to life group, did all those things. We even went an extra level. We watched a church service online. Obedience matters to God because it's an overflow of your love for him. And I think it's important for the church to get back to a place where we love Jesus so much, we are so in love with him, that we have to pray. Father God, thank you so much for allowing us to dive into your word and especially here Look at how we can apply it to our lives. That it's not enough for us to just attend church. It's not enough for us to just attend DNA or life group or even go on a, a thing where we read a book. But it's something, Father God, we just have to act. We have to do. We need to be obedient to your word. We need to go out and storm the gates of hell win over as many people as we can because eternity is at stake for so many people. And I pray that we won't just be a church that talks, but we will walk, we will do, we will act. And I pray that this town won't look the same because of it. So help us to do that. Be doers of your word, not just hearers only. Love you. We're grateful for you. Thank you for challenging us the way you have. This we ask in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I read things like this during the week, and I'm like, man, I feel like I just got kicked um, hard.
And if you feel like you've gotten kicked hard and you need prayer, I would love to pray with you. I'm going to sit right over here. Uh, so we're going to have a time of worship and response. And so uh, we have two stations. We do this every week at Revive. But we have an opportunity for you to be responding to God um, in several different ways. One is prayer. Another, if you want to give your life to Jesus, there's no better time than right now. We have several baptisms coming up around Easter, and I'm super pumped about that. Uh, but also through communion. And we have two stations in the back. And communion, if this is new to you, um, you don't have to be a member of Revive. You don't have to be a part of Revive's family to partake. You just need to believe in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and spend some time remembering that sacrifice. That's what it is. It's a memorial. Um, just like any other memorial that you go by. If you're in New York City and you go by the 9-11 memorial, if you're in Oklahoma City, you'll go by a memorial. It reminds you of an event that took place. This reminds us of an event that is actually still taking place. The word propitiation is the work of the cross. And the work of the cross still happens today for my sin and yours. And so as you take the little piece of cracker and the cup of juice, remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you. There's also two boxes in which you can give. If you're online, you can go to reviveloveland.org up slash give. Um, and if you give in the boxes or you give online, I would just encourage you, make sure you worship in your giving. You're giving to kingdom work. And uh, we're just so grateful that you would do that. And so we're going to open up the room. You guys can move about however you need. And uh, have this time with God. And if you need prayer, come and see me. You guys can move about the room however you need.